Hi, thank you for tuning in to the Finding Harmony podcast with me, your host, Harmony Slater. Hi, welcome to the Finding Harmony podcast. I'm so happy you're here today, and I don't really know what, where. What, what are you doing? Oh, uh, Russell's behind me. We. What? Are you recording? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I'm recording. I I didn't know you were in the house. <laughs> what are you doing? Are you you're recording? Yeah, I'm I'm here actually. I'm here with Greg Nardi, who's You're, my what? friend from Clubhouse and from life in general. Greg fucking Nardi is here. <laughs> yeah. Gre- Greg, how are you, brother? Good. How are you, Russell? Good. I I you've been like you're so busy with the fucking thing and like we're start, you're, like you're doing like a 36-hour yoga marathon and you're doing a like a fucking podcast right now? Yeah, well, you know, Greg and I thought we'd just squeeze it in. <laughs> hey man, that's, well, that's modern life, isn't it? That is. <laughs> Well, about five different balls in the air, juggling them around. Oh, I remember my time in the Castro, I juggled a lot of balls. I'm sure you did. <laughs> oh, my God. It's going to be that kind of experience today. <laughs> I, yeah, it might. This one's going to come with a rating. So uh, anyone with sensitive ears, sensitive sensibilities, mm. maybe this isn't the podcast Where Where are you today? <laughs> Right. I am in Florida. I actually uh, live in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, South Florida. Oh, fantastic! Mm-hmm. That's, that's like a, it's a whole different breed of people in in Florida. Yeah, I that's think. the spring break town, right? It is. It had like that reputation a couple of decades ago, and they've been fighting against that reputation ever since. But um, but I'm yeah, it's the myself. spring break town. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I've heard they really need a, a zoo for white people. In Fort Lauderdale? And it's called Florida. Oh, that's, that's a mean one. <laughs> are, are, you, are you native to there? Were, you, were your parents bred in captivity? Were they, no. were they captured in the wild? <laughs> no. I am actually from New Jersey originally. You're from, oh, Jersey. Okay, you and Chuck are the most famous New Jersey yeah, yogis. They are the Jersey boys of Ashtanga. That's right. Chuck uh, yeah. and I started our Ashtanga yoga pretty much together. He was in massage school and I was in yoga school at the same time and they were in the same building. So we became friends through that. And I introduced him to Ashtanga and we just really got into it together. But we were from like a small town. So we had known each other like for years through, you know, mutual friends and things like that. Well, that's incredible. You grew up together. What small town was that? It's a suburb of Manhattan called Parsippany, New Jersey. I was in touch with Chuck recently, and apparently he's stranded in India right now. Yeah, he's like stuck there. I had heard that. But he's happy about it, so. He got there like prior to the pandemic and ended up getting locked down there, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, he's he's there for a while. (laughs) Lonely and afraid. No, he's he's not alone. He's with someone, and he didn't seem very afraid. So no, that's that wouldn't good. be Chuck. Would it? Yeah, Chuck from Jersey. That's fantastic. And so you're um you're indigenous Italian, is that right? Yeah, I'm I'm a different alphabet mafia. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And and when did your people come over to the new world? Uh, so we're, I'm Italian and Irish, actually, and I'm third generation on both sides. Oh, so okay. that's, so and that's like a really common mix in, in like the New York, New Jersey area is, is Italian and Irish. 
Okay. And and were your your is your dad Italian? Your mom was Irish? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Really? I got that right? <laughs> you did. You had a 50-50 shot. <laughs> <laughs> Those are good odds. <laughs> so your parents weren't bred in captivity. Where what did they do when when you were growing up? <clears throat> so my father worked in finance and my mother is a music director in the Catholic Church. Oh wow. Oh yeah. neat. So you're fairly Catholic then? Uh, um yeah sure i was raised catholic um uh-huh. did all of my sacraments up through what's that last one you do um confirmation <coughs> yeah uh, well yes. i mean there's a last there's other ones that you do but i i had confirmation and then left the church at that point and you know i was like my mom being a music director we always were very kind of embedded in the church but my mom wasn't like a kind of a holy roller she just really mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it was like part of her identity she loved music she loved the the church but she was definitely had her eyes open and she could be a cultural critic and that kind of stuff and when we um you know we had a lot of priests who were in our house all the time and so they they would kind of hang out at our house like casually and so it was really interesting to me because I actually had this view of religion where I saw these people as real people and I saw them Mm. you know kind of just acting casual smoking drinking hanging out talking around the kitchen table so that was like a a very different relationship to the church I think than than some other people have but that sounds like a good time though I think you would have been more drawn to the church yeah, they had some policies that I wasn't into. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, oh goodness, I but I I would have. Um, I would you say that your parents were were supportive of you? Did they, I'm I'm wondering if the if your if the policies around gay marriage is, is what you're referring to. Yeah, for sure, and you know, I mean. It was even more than that. I just think that I wasn't somebody who was drawn to organized religion. I came to appreciate the show of the Catholic Mass. You know, I think it's a beautiful ritual and the buildings are amazing and these kinds of things. But I also found it to be just really restrictive. Um, So when I got, you know, I, I was always a very spiritual person. This is kind of the cliche, you know, spiritual but not religious. Um mm-hmm. But I was always somebody who was drawn to that kind of mystical, you know, understanding of life, but certainly not the organized aspects of the church. And when I did start to sort of express that side of myself as I was getting older, my parents were very supportive. Um, my mom, she w- she would kind of say, like, I would have altars in my room and stuff like that. And she'd be like, it doesn't matter what you put on your altar as long as you also leave a little space for Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. What uh, what religions did you start to explore at a young age? Was it yoga to begin with, or was there other other things? Uh, mostly uh, Wicca and Native American studies. Um, oh, seriously? Yeah, seriously. <laughs> oh wow! That's yeah, yoga. Kind of. I didn't ever really intend yoga. Um, I'm sure you guys remember. This was like probably in the 90s when I started doing yoga and it was just not as popular as it is today and I didn't really know much about it and a friend of mine just invited me to take a class I wasn't seeking yoga but I did it socially and like it just ticked all of the boxes for me and I I dove right into it 
But let me ask you about this Wicca thing. I, I would I would think that that wouldn't fly in your house. <laughs> it was it flew in some areas. Like actually my parents didn't really have an issue with it. I, I was definitely branded like the the witch. You know, the black the witch. Family. The fucking witch. Yeah. yeah, the witch of the family. You know, but they just thought I was being like weird and I was trying to find right. myself. Like I was alternative, you know, like that was also yeah. big mm-hmm. at that time. Um, yes. But my grandmother, I do remember reading um, a, a book about Wicca at her house and she uh, mm-hmm. told me that I wasn't allowed to bring it into the house. <laughs> wow. Oh, oh, you brought yeah. it to her house. I wouldn't read it. Said, and she yeah. said, you didn't find it there. No, 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 no. I brought no. it there. Okay, yeah. yeah. And she said, out with that. Yeah. <laughs> that needs to stay outside the front door. It's, and, yeah, that was like devil worship to her. Yeah. And your, and your, maybe your sexuality also needed to stay in? Was that, no. was that something else that w- that they were aware of? They, you know, I wasn't even aware of it. Um, that that was like a long journey for me to kind of come to terms with and to figure it out. And I went through a lot of stages where I would kind of explore it and then I would deny it and all these types of things. But when I did finally come out, it was like such a non-issue in my family. Like, you know, part of being in the Catholic Church actually was that my mom was incredibly like you know, she had a lot of gay friends because a lot of priests mm. and musicians were gay. So she was right. completely comfortable with that. Oh, because I would think that, that most parents, if they didn't have their head in the fucking sand, would, would know their kid and know what their kid uh, needs and wants. Mm-hmm. And Yet you would think... <laughs> <laughs> but I don't like, know if that's it everybody's a, experience. <laughs> but it yeah. shouldn't be like a sh- like a surprise, you know. When you, I would, I wouldn't think so. No, but it's it wasn't a surprise, I don't think. But I think uh, it was certainly something that you know. The thing about my family is I've always known that I'm unconditionally loved, right? And so. Mm. Wow. There's absolutely nothing that I felt that I could do that would sort of have my parents reject me. So there was no Mm -hmm. issue around, you know, they wouldn't accept that or they didn't accept that. Like, as long as I was happy, they were happy. But in terms of like whether or not, you know, this this is actually something that recently occurred to me. There's a big difference between tolerance and acceptance. So Mm -hmm. they did they did kind of accept it, but I don't think they did a lot to really like embrace it. You know what I mean? And, and mm. I think that was just very much of like their attitude, like we love you. So we are going to give you the freedom to do what you want and be who you want. But you know, you do, you will be, we'll do us and you do you. <laughs> well, that's incredible. Yeah. Actually. Yeah. That's so, that sounds like just so healthy and so healing and such an amazing environment to, to know that that you're loved no matter what and you can be open and honest and not afraid of of sharing yeah yeah it was it was not you know again i think the hardest part of it was just coming out to myself and to to sort of accept that if i embrace this this identity that i i that was growing in me that it would change my life forever and that was something that was it took a long time Mm-hmm. It's a it's a discussion I had to have with myself um, as a as a teenager, um, 
I was really very confused because I was, I knew that I was very interested in females and female forms and I was fascinated by them. But um, the whole situation of being nude with someone was so incredibly uncomfortable Mm. and didn't agree with me. Um, I'd say for about like five years before I could really, I could get comfortable being with being nude with, with another human being. Mm -hmm. And I really questioned like, well, does this mean that I'm, I'm gay if I'm, if I can't really do this situation very well. And I think I, I think I might even have been like 20 or 21 before I finally kind of maybe 20 before I finally said, yeah, I think I'm not, I think I'm not gay. Yeah. Because it's, it struck me as really, I, I was surprised for you to also say that you weren't quite sure. And that's what, what resonated in me is like oh yeah i also wasn't quite sure yeah i love like this conversation that's happening today which has been happening for as long as i can remember but it's just finally gaining traction around you know identity and the fact that like it's that that it's a spectrum and you know it's not just a straightforward binary discussion that you're this or you're that you know and we all fall somewhere along that and and in some ways I've, I had to struggle with like a a bit of an imposter syndrome of like not feeling gay enough, but knowing that I'm not straight and not quite knowing how that works. Um, You know, I have friends who say, oh yeah, I knew from the time I was five years old, I was not one of those. You know, I did a lot of like experimenting and I would like fool around with a guy and then I would be like totally ashamed and be like, oh, I tried that. That's not for me. And then, you know, and it just went back and forth for a long time until I finally sort of said, I don't have to be, you know, like, like really what I have to be is just like true to myself. And that means Mm -hmm. that, you know, like my wants are valid no matter what they are. Sometimes it's helpful just to take the the pressure off of having to fit into a particular category or box. Oh, and but the world wants you in a box. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. It's really, it's really, and that's confusing because there's nothing really human about, you know, fitting into the box. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, in order to go into a box, you have to completely disenfranchise parts of yourself you know and and it's like I think society does that but then we end up doing it to ourselves you know we we internalize all of that and and we try to put ourselves into boxes and we suffer as a result of that we actually had this discussion with sister Sri where we talked about the efficiency of language and I was expressing to her that I'm I'm uncomfortable with the word white you know I was you know when I was growing up, if you if you said white boy, I knew exactly who you were talking about. That was me. I accepted that. Yeah. You, you know, being in an all black high school in New Orleans, hey white boy, it's like, oh, it's that's me. <laughs> I know who that is. Um, but um, the word white also it's ex- it's exclusive. Whereas if you're you know if you want to get into the bucket or you want to stay out of the bucket or it. it it's it's a, it separates meaning and definition, and yet we Regina made uh, Sister Shree made this point that like well, we also need words to communicate, you know. So tree doesn't adequately hold everything that embodies treeness. Mm. You know, when you say tree, you could mean an infinite number of, of different beings and organisms, you know. And but let 
we say, well, that's it. You see, it's over by the tree. We use that to be efficient to communicate, even if it's extraordinarily limiting to the experience of being. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think that it is um, something that is necessary to exist in the world. You know, there we have to filter out information. We have to categorize because otherwise we wouldn't get anything done. But at the end of the day, I think that is... <laughs> the big trick is being able to recognize the the categorization and the labeling without re, without buying into the fact that that is explanatory you know it's descriptive but it's certainly not explanatory yeah, that kind of reminds me of um you know the idea in like the yoga philosophy or especially like advaita vedanta the idea that what we're um you know, living in that this this functional reality isn't reality at all. And it's almost like that linguistically too, right? We mm-hmm. attach such a de- definite meaning to a word and then we think that that is that thing and, and those words are true and real and 100%, you know, there's 100% clarity to them. But there's a lot of, um, you know, as you were saying, Russell, ambiguity to the word, and it doesn't. It can, there's no possible way it can actually capture the experience of, of a thing or of an experience. Or you yeah. know, they're always a little bit mismatched, and so in a way, it's like uh, an illusion. <laughs> it's my. And I mean, isn't that interesting? I'm not an expert on these things, but isn't that why language is so important in philosophy? Because language is what creates our reality. It's it's how we see the world, it, you know, and, and part of going into transcendental states is transcending language to get to a more yes. directness of experience. I, I think that's yeah. how I understand it. <laughs> totally. And yeah, I think that's, they yeah. call that semiotics, right, Harm? Semantics? Semiotics. Semiotics? The study of, of language and, yeah. and uh, trying to derive, like Heidegger or uh, Foucault or um, these post-structuralists, are, are looking at semiotics to understand what meaning is and derive our meaning from that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at some point you just, yeah, you, you kind of have to go and, and drop acid and, and remove <laughs> language altogether. At least that was my experience. Yeah. Uh, yeah, for sure. Mine too, Russell. <laughs> um, <laughs> but let like, me, let me, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, just one thing, just following up though around this idea of language and identity. I think there's two things that are that are intersecting though at that point of language or labels. You know, there's sort of the way that I choose to express myself, right? So like maybe, you know, when you hear the word white boy or or I hear the word queer or something like that, like there's something that is being expressed in terms of my identity. But then there is also, you know, the fact that like it's not just me expressing my identity. I'm also serving as an object for others. So in other words, like mm-hmm. people are going to look at me and they're going to apply a label to me. And I think that's where the challenge can come is like when my identity sort of doesn't match the way that the world is reflecting to me. And there, you know, therein lies the, you know, the the character building, let's say the the strength that, that it takes to actually express an identity that doesn't fit neatly into a box that's validated by society. Yeah, totally. I think that's such a beautiful way of summing it up. Well, speaking of gay identity, I understand that in high school you were uh, an Olympic class Greco-Roman wrestler. (laughs) 
Yeah, right. I, I heard that. What was your weight class? My weight. <laughs> I know where you're going. With this. <laughs> um, yeah, actually, I was not as physical at all in 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 high school. I was not involved in any kind of team activities. <laughs> so, what did you do in high school? What did I do in high school? Um, dropped out. I so I actually went through my high school years were not the best years of my life. So I was struggling a lot with um, you know some of these issues around identity, but um, just other things. I was um, just struggling to fit in and find myself. So I actually became kind of antisocial in high school. I had a very small group of very close friends, which is what I still prefer to this day. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, I was not really that involved. And by the time I, I would say by the time I was in sophomore year, I had sort of checked out mentally by the time I was in my junior year, I think it was, I was hospitalized for depression and suicide attempt. And oh. I dropped out of high school in my senior year. And was that depression rooted in, in the identity issues that you mentioned or was it or how, like other stuff? Who who knows? I mean, these things are so complex and complicated. Like, what is it that mm -hmm. makes it, you know, I, it, it's easy to say. And I think it gave my parents great relief when I did come out because they felt like that explained everything. Um, oh, right. But I don't think that that's the case. My diagnosis officially was chronic depression due to chronic illness because I was asthmatic as a kid. And so I did miss a lot of school. And uh, I was also kind of small in stature. So I was bullied fairly regularly. Uh, I was more on the, you know, sort of characteristics that would classically be considered effeminate. So I think I just dealt with a lot of bullying and stuff before I even really had mm -hmm. any concept of identity. Um, right. and I just, yeah, like I honestly, you know, and I, I've tried to piece it together because I had a really good childhood. Like I was provided everything that I needed. And so I was always looking for like, where was that traumatic event that triggered all this? And there was none, um, mm. uh, you know, other than like the aggressions that we probably all go through and deal with and stuff like that. But I also recognize that like, you know, I really, have spent a lot of time over the last several years studying about trauma, largely triggered by events in our Ashtanga community. Um, mm, yeah. And one of the, you know, things that I came to understand is about generational trauma. And to me, that has been really useful because, you know, I came in a generation where I was living in a conservative white suburb in the Northeast, but had come from a family of immigrants. And it seemed as though every generation going back had just had like a more and a more and a more difficult life. And I think mm -hmm. that we just got used to, you know, sort of patterns of trauma that got passed in our family that, um, you know, that, that has taken me a long time to kind of first just be able to recognize and second, be able to, to work with and heal. And I think that's part of the beauty of being three generations out and having been given a lot of privileges is I've had the space and time to actually consider those things and, and the resources to do something about it. That's super interesting to me. Cause I, I feel like it's something that I've, that I've been interested in as, as well is generational trauma and, and like the, you know, I've, I've shared some of the, the horror stories of, of, uh, beatings or murders or, or drug abuse and things that have happened in 
in generationally to our clan. Um, and I felt like I, I followed a similar route that, that you did where of kind of checking out of high school, you know, just sitting there, you know, taking acid before school started, you know, kind of just, and then doing, doing that, like not, you know, not being able to remember my, my locker combination, that kind of thing. Mm. And just in and being really checked out and then ultimately removed myself socially by the time my, of my senior year where, you know, I was not interacting with any other classmates at all. Mm. Um, But I didn't, but I, but I felt like I had a reason for it because I was, I was also um, being teased uh, as, as queer bait or being teased uh, as just being, I don't think they knew that I was, uh, Jewish. I don't think they had a word for how, why, why I looked and acted weird or thought weird things. Um, but I, I also kind of felt like, well, I'm, you know, my mom's a single mom. We we're we move constantly or our, our, our childhood was a fucking mess. So I'm, I guess I'm interested that, that this was occurring for you in a place of privilege as well, but, but still, all of that inherited trauma is right there in your experience. Yeah. I mean, you know, like at the time, I think that there were things that I would look at and be like, oh, I'm depressed because whatever, you know, like I was bullied mm. or because. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just none of it seemed to rise to the level of my response. And I knew that I was cutting myself. I was, you know seriously like I was running away contemplating suicide like all these different things and you know like nothing seemed nothing that had gone on in my life seemed to justify that and I just couldn't figure it out and and actually when I was hospitalized um I was around kids who had pretty severe mental challenges and emotional challenges and that kind of like straightened me up right away like I was just like oh like all right, I'm depressed, but these people are like seriously struggling with some things. And that was part of like, it was very interesting. It took me a long time to actually figure out that I could do something to heal myself because I got out of that hospital. I realized, okay, I don't want to kill myself. That was actually just something that I, it wasn't that I didn't want to, it wasn't that I I wanted to die. It was just that I didn't want to go on living my life the way it was. Right. Right. So then I started doing drugs <laughs> um, that's my next escape <laughs> so yeah. I was a really good escape artist for a long time and actually it was when I found yoga was when I realized that I could that, that I that I could take responsibility for my own healing and that's you know that 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 was sort of like a big turnaround for me I was, I was pretty young I was in my early 20s but mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like it was the, the generational trauma bit was I started to realize that my mom had gone through significant trauma as a child and that when somebody has unresolved trauma, they have certain behaviors like hypervigilance and always seeing, you know, always looking out like a strong negativity bias and these types of things. And that was what I Pro, you know, I patterned my nervous system off of hers. That's what kids do to parents. Of course. Yeah. Um, I remember having this one, you know, 
journey, this chemically altered journey, let's say. Um, <laughs> but I, I uncovered a memory as a kid. And whether this is real or not, I don't know. But this was where I, my mom, she told me this was true. She, she was very depressed when I was a baby. And she used to walk on the beach holding me in her arms and crying. Wow. And so I remembered a memory of me making a sort of contract. This is pre-verbal. I wasn't able to, I was still a baby, that I would be sick so that she would have somebody to take care of. Wow. It was the only way that I knew how to care for her. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, I was and a baby. I was helpless. So, yeah, it's very interesting too, because I feel like so much like children pick up so much of what their parents are carrying, like emotionally, energetically. And, you know, as a mother with a, with a child, I remember, you know, if I was starting to get upset, mm -hmm. um, even just like internally upset with something, you know, Jediah would start like crying or like, you know, reacting in some way. Mm -hmm. And I always found it so interesting that like, I became very aware of, of the need to like maintain um, like an inner calm and to not be upset or to not be, um, you know, sad or not necessarily not be that around him, but that he, mm. it would affect him in some way that he was picking up on that much more subtler vibration. Yeah. 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 Kids are amazing. They just absorb everything, huh? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so, it's, you know, it's not to lay blame, but it is just sort of like a process of understanding that, you know, when you're that age and you are forming your identity, even in pre-conscious states, you know, like mm -hmm. that you pick things up that become a part of you that maybe, you know, shouldn't be there or are not helping you in any way. And yeah. that was a big part of my journey was to sort of start to unpack, you know, like who I was and, and what were some of the influences that led to this period of intense suffering in my life that I was very confused about. And then to mm -hmm. also recognize that I could do something to heal it, you know, that I, that I could that I could change who I was from that moment forward. What sort of work were you doing in your early 20s, late teens? How were you passing the days? Yeah. Um, so I, I did try to um, go to college because that's what's expected. I had also gone to culinary school. So I was like trying to do a oh. lot of things um, because that's the age where you're supposed to like figure out what you want to do with your life. And I couldn't mm -hmm. figure it out. Nothing seemed satisfying to me. I kind of came with a very, this is that like immigrant work ethic. Like you just work really hard and, and you get your rewards later, you know, and that just never seemed <laughs> satisfying to me. So um, that's when I finally walked into a yoga class. It was very much by chance, but it was something where I found like, okay, maybe there's a possibility that I could actually do something that I love. Maybe I can earn money at it, although that's never been a huge driving factor for me. It's just a reality of it. Um, and, and something you know, that none of us have done, honestly. Still. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Exactly. We're still working and yeah, waiting for those results yeah. to come. I mean, all all is coming. Waiting so. for the all. We'll, it'll get there. 
Yeah. Whatever. I mean, you know, I, I've had a good life. I'm not. Uh, I have. I have no complaints. Yeah. But um. But yeah. Like so. That's you know. Like that was honestly what it was. It was um. You know, I started doing yoga and literally like that is all I did like maybe in an unbalanced way you know <laughs> like because again wow. I was looking for an answer and so I found this thing and I just like did it for hours and hours and hours every day and I'm not talking about just the physical practice I was doing everything that was available at the time I was working with shamans and I was doing trance dances and I was <laughs> you know whatever I could get my hands into <laughs> that seemed to be part of this path I did it <laughs> So yeah. from your first yoga class, what what type of yoga was it? Oh, and I was also going to a lot of raves. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> As was I. Yeah. Um, the first yoga class. So this this is uh, going back to where I met Chuck. There was a, a, a massage school in New Jersey in my hometown. Um, and the sort of there was a front room there that had it could fit maybe 12 yoga mats in it or 10 yoga mats, something like that. And so a friend of mine had gone to get a massage and the massage therapist was the yoga teacher and he told her to come back for a yoga class. And I was, she was, she didn't want to go alone. So she asked me if I would go with her and I did. So I, I really wasn't looking for this at all. I, it was sort of a mix, like, I don't know if you guys remember, but in the nineties, you know, yoga was sort of just becoming popular and just, people were still mm -hmm. trying to figure out exactly what it was. So there was a lot of blending right, just, going on. Just yeah. after like the Madonna movie and then like, then it was like huge. Pri yeah. Prior to the Madonna movie, actually. Um, this is like 96, right? When was the Madonna movie? I think, I think um, I, I had just come back from Korea. So that might've been 99, 98 yeah. was the Madonna movie. Yeah, so 96, yeah. there were people, yeah, trying all kinds of things. Yeah. But not a lot of people. <laughs> Not, not as many people as there are today, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah. Um, and it was like super punk rock back then. Like, you know, it was like in these like really weird basement spaces or, or you know, <laughs> yeah. off the off the beaten path places in the East Village. Like, you know, it's just really fun. Mm -hmm. um, but that first yoga class was like a mix of like, uh, so the, the main teacher at the massage school was a bhakta. Um, he was a disciple of a woman called Hilda Charlton, who uh, had lived with Satya Sai Baba for a number of years. So there Whoa. was that element of it. Um, then he also was a um, student of Michio Kushi, who started the macrobiotics movement. So there was a lot of sort of right. uh, TCM and Japanese um, healing arts in it. And then also my teacher was uh, his his father had been a martial artist. So we were mixing like all of the yoga and all of the <laughs> Eastern healing and all of the bhakti and just, you know, doing whatever we could. It was fun. <laughs> and so did you feel like the effects immediately? Were you like the first class, you were just like, oh my God, this is transformative. Immediately. Yeah. Wow. Immediately. Yeah. yeah. And I had no idea why it just, yeah. I think because having grown up you know, asthmatic and, and not feeling very comfortable in my body. It was the first time I felt comfortable in my body. And mm -hmm. I was on this sort of seeking for some type of, you know, spiritual understanding of the meaning of life. And so it sort of just seemed to tick all of those boxes. I just had mm -hmm. no idea how it worked. Like all I knew is I went in, I 
jumped around, I sang songs, I danced, I made friends, <laughs> and like it, it was all somehow yoga. <laughs> and you felt better. <laughs> and I felt better when I left. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. That's all that matters at that point, right? It just does this make me feel better and not worse. Yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah very yeah. much. The raves made me feel worse. Yeah. Did they? I mean, I mean, like, I've talked about this on the podcast before about the, the extraordinary healing benefits of, of ecstasy or MDMA for me personally. But like staying up all fucking night and dancing for six or seven hours to like pounding fucking rave music, (laughs) you know, dub. It's like not not as good for you. Yeah, I don't know. I was pretty fit. I don't know. (laughs) To me, it was awesome because it was a place where I could go and I could just be unrestrained, you know, like and that felt really good. So when did you start to become introduced to the Ashtanga yoga practice? Uh, so I guess I, uh, about, let's see, probably about two years after I started yoga. Um, so I was, you know, at that time, again, I was very sort of immersed and very intense about my yoga practice. It was just like, I felt like I had been invited into a secret club of people who had like the inside scoop of what life was all about, you know? So I started going into Manhattan. I was close enough um, and just trying every kind of yoga that I could. I was a very new teacher. So like, of course, my bio was like, Greg has studied Iyengar, Bikram, Kundalini, (laughs) Ashtanga. Because I like took a workshop One class each. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You said the East Village. Like, were were you at Dharma Mitra and Jiva Mukti and that kind of thing? Yeah, you know, actually, Dharma Mitra is probably one of the few teachers who I feel I missed out on. I never made it to his studio, and he's one of the teachers who has, like, you know, maintained respect throughout the years, and I wish I had studied with Mm. him. But Jiva Mukti was pivotal. Um, So I remember going into Manhattan one time and just walking around on the streets and stopping people, literally stopping people in the village and saying, hey, where should I go take a yoga class? You know, just looking for something new. And somebody's like, oh, anybody who's anyone goes to Jiva Mukti. (laughs) So it's like, all right. Yeah. Our listeners will get, our listeners will definitely get the idea that the, if you were from the East coast and you're a hundred miles from New York, Jiva Mukti was the, the, the place that was where people formed their yoga identity. It's, it's, I mean, anybody that we've had on the show during those years. Yeah. Yeah. Is it really? That's amazing. (laughs) Yeah, Lisa Schramm for or Kimberly Flynn, like they've oh, all yeah. like, oh yeah. Even Eddie Stern was Eddie teaching Stern. Mysore there. You know, it was yeah, just like know, the only he place went to go. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. laughs> my true. first Mysore class in my life was at Jiva Mukti with oh, wow. with Russell. With Russell Kai. Oh, sure. Govinda. I remember those days. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I went so, but I went to Jiva Mukti, and it was the first time I had taken a vinyasa style class, and Sharon Gannon was teaching it. So this is at the right. Uh, right. Second Avenue location, and she, and it was the first time she adjusted me in Paschimottanasana. It was the first time I had ever gotten a, a, you know, an adjustment or an assist, and right, it yeah. was like, whoa, what is this stuff, you know, and. Yeah. <laughs> Their their guru was Patabi Joyce, so I was like, all right, I want to find Ashtanga Yoga. Like, and I yeah. went and I saw a teacher, and just fortunately, 
at that time, there was a guy who had studied with Richard Freeman and had taught at Yoga Works in LA. And he just moved to a town in New Jersey nearby me. And I started studying with him like every day. Um, what, what was his, his name? His name was Raji Trone. He's no longer mm-hmm. an Ashtanga practitioner, but he is a he has a studio called Yoga Synthesis in New York now, I believe. Oh, well, very few of us are Ashtanga practitioners anymore. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a phase. You'll you'll outgrow it. That was a that was I was a we're this is a, that's a distinct period of history, and yeah, that's closed now. Um, how then you? It's, you must have decided you went to you went to Mysore very early, didn't you? Like yeah. you were. How did you get there? It was in 1999, <laughs> and I had been practicing Ashtanga for about a year. Wow! And you've been practicing uh, yoga for about four years. Three, it sounds like three. Years. I have been practicing been doing yoga, yoga for three, three years. years but Ashtanga, yeah. yeah, yeah, but Ashtanga for one year, right? And, okay. you know, so like I used, to, I, I mean, I was practicing in the suburbs of New Jersey, right? And so I loved the community I was with, but it was, you know, a suburban yoga community. So I was younger than most of the other practitioners and I was practicing more often and, and harder, you know, because I thought that's what you're supposed yeah. to do at that time. And, and you're also you know, like, young and have a lot of energy. <laughs> totally. I was, you know, in my early 20s. And, you know, I would walk into class and people would be like, oh, my God, it's going to be that kind of a class. you know. <laughs> 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 and Raji sort of looked at me. He was very encouraging. And he said, listen, you should go to Mysore. He had been there once, I think, nine years prior in the mid 80s. And wow. he gave me Patabi Joyce's address and phone number. And mm-hmm. wow. so I bought a plane ticket based on his suggestion. Um, I remember I, I called Patabi Joyce up on the phone like the day before I was supposed to leave to see if it, I could attend. <laughs> mm-hmm. wow. That's awesome. And, and I didn't know what I was calling. Like, I just I thought I was calling like an institute. I was expecting to talk to like a secretary or something like that. But, right. you know, Patabi <laughs> Joyce answered the phone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. Yeah, and that's not like, the way it works. Yeah. Hey, I'd like to come and study on these dates. And he goes, Yes, you come. And I was like, Oh my God, I'm talking to the guy, you know? <laughs> <laughs> that's so interesting because that's also how I was introduced to Patabi Joyce was um one of his students. Um it might have even been Fiona or some yeah. some older student I had said I wanted to go study and they wrote down his name and address and phone number on a little piece of paper and I folded it up because I couldn't go to India yet and I put it in in my jewelry box and kept mm-hmm. it there because like one day I'm gonna make it to India right. but yeah. it was before they had a website so it was the only way For to sure. find them was through somebody who knew how to find them I mean, that's like the cool thing about those days that, you know, like, I mean, not to sort of glorify the old days, but, you know, it was literally <laughs> like that. Like somebody had to give you that piece of paper yeah. in order for you to go. And, you know, there was just it made that, it so cool. It, <laughs> it did. I, I was I was in Korea in 98 <laughs> teaching English and my my time had come to an end. And I was like, well, what do I do now? And I I. I, my, my yoga teacher in Chicago, Suda, you know, he had the address, he had the phone number. He went every, he went twice a year to Mysore to study practice. And I thought, I really want to do that. But I also kind of want to take the train to Europe. Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
And I was like, which direction do I do? Do I, do I go? Do I go south to India or do I go you know, and look at paintings in Europe? Mm-hmm. And I was just like, fuck, I think I really want to go to Europe and go look at paintings. <laughs> and so I just, I just, I had a thousand bucks. That's all I had. And I was like, well, it's one way or the other. And I kind of, I kind of felt like I just wasn't going to have any support structure yeah. to go to India. Like there was no, like I was going to land and then like basically ask people from in Mumbai, how do I get to Mysore? <laughs> yeah. And I could kind of like, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not <laughs> sure about that. I think I'm going to go, I'm going to Europe and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly how it was, Russell. <laughs> <laughs> it was exactly like that. You got in a I, rickshaw and said, do you know this guy? Where does exactly, he live? <laughs> where do I go? Exactly. I actually went to Sai Baba's ashram first. That was the, oh, yeah. oh, wow, the yeah. very first yeah. thing I did. I got off the plane in Bangalore and I went to Whitefield. And mm-hmm. I had actually been taught by my teacher that you know Sai Baba was an avatar of God so I was like expecting to go and meet God and I was so disappointed (laughs) really (laughs) so disappointed yeah you were disappointed by God yeah I mean you know I guess God is everything and God is everywhere so (laughs) yeah but no that's I didn't I just felt like it was like um I mean not, not to talk about anybody else's beliefs or, or system, but when I went there, I just felt like it was incredibly codependent and it made me feel very uncomfortable. And I got oh, out of wow. there as fast as I could. Mm, yeah. yeah, there's Good been a lot you. brought to light about Sai Baba as well. <laughs> yeah, so then I went to meet the other guru who also a lot has come to light about. <laughs> yes, ah. it's true. <laughs> it's, it's a lot, it was a lot of codependence all over. But... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so you went from the ashram to Mysore and mm. found your place. Did you stay in the Calvary Hotel? No, I actually, believe it or not, you, you brought up Fiona. Fiona and I arrived on the same day and Fiona was with a couple of other folks from Vancouver. Mm-hmm. And we became roommates at the uh, post oh, office. Cool. Oh, yeah. So that first trip, we actually spent a few months together and that was awesome. Really great. Yeah. I found a picture of you, I think, from that first trip, and you've got yeah. like long black flowing hair and <laughs> cut off sh- like Shiva shirt, and yeah. like you look like a like a I don't know like a deadhead or a, a grateful <laughs> dead, and you're like yeah. just oh I the dead are playing in Mysore, so here I am. <laughs> so that's my second trip actually, and oh, it was. that was yeah the the yoga had been working on me for a while at that point. <laughs> But my my first trip, I actually had short hair. You know, it's funny, um, but like when I when I got into yoga, I again I got very extreme, and there was a lot of other things going on there. But one of the big things was about um, nutrition and and clean eating. And like most things in my life, I took it to a real extreme. Um, and the first <laughs> time I went to Mysore, I was actually 118 pounds. So mm. if you saw pictures of me in Mysore the first trip, I was like a little stick with a bobblehead wearing a lungi around town. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that kept falling off. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> 
Wow. Yeah. 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 I think we all kind of uh, took some extreme roads in our yoga journeys, especially in those early days. It was uh, a different type of emphasis than you find currently in, I think, mainstream yoga. Yeah. There was a lot of striving. Mm -hmm. You know, there was a, a belief that you know, for, for me personally, and for a lot of people, I think, you know, that that it was like, we were, we were trying to get there, you know, wherever there was. And that meant, you know, living a very disciplined and, and extreme life in some cases. And I remember doing cleanses yeah. that I would never, ever contemplate doing today. <laughs> like yeah. drinking liters of salt water until it's coming out both yeah. ends. <laughs> like all this kind right. of stuff. Yeah, I've done that. <laughs> yeah. Did you ever swallow cloth? Did you do that one? I didn't do the carbonated cloth, but I do <laughs> remember doing the sutra neti. Actually, I kind of like the sutra neti. <laughs> That's where you. I put still the, do the sutra neti. You put the cloth. You put the like the tube into your nose and yeah. pull it out like a you're flossing. Yeah, yeah I, you floss I, your, we, your sinuses. You floss, floss your, your nose. Yeah. yeah. I told Russell's mom I was doing that. She says that sounds horrible. <laughs> like no it's kind of good it keeps your nose open <laughs> yeah <laughs> i i do remember you telling me a, a like a long time ago that there was this this really we were like complaining about how busy it was and you had said something like oh you have no idea like when we were in 99 to 2000 there was like a i think you said there was like a big jump in the number of students and he's like oh my god there's 50 people here now yeah. Mm -hmm. And at the yeah. time there was like, when you were telling me the story, there was like, we we're complaining because there was 400. Yeah. It was really like intimate for you though. Like, was there just like one or two batches your first trip? What, what yeah. was it like for you in that, in that first day in that class? First trip, it was, I think 30 people when I first arrived. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, so, you know, three two batches. batches pretty much. Two and, batches. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I could get in, you know, I think I was in at 4.30 <laughs> right away. So it, yeah. it, it was none of this, like, the specialness of being able to be in the 4.30 batch or whatever. Right. Oh, my God. That was, that's, I remember that. We, we talked about this with Mark Roberts, too, about all the different things that we thought were so special that our fucking lives depended on it, that we, like, being on a list of some kind. Yeah. <laughs> and so, like, that 4.30 slot, I remember, like, fucking, like, uh, certified teachers coming in and just like you know they would take their robes off and walk into the 430 class and it was like oh, fuck you take the 430 slot you're so fucking special you know yeah and in my in like the last five trips i was on there was i had no desire to be in that 430 class give me the fucking six o'clock slot yeah please yeah Ridiculous. i i don't know i mean i just I tried not to buy into that stuff. Like, of course, you couldn't help it to some degree. You were mm -hmm. surrounded by it, and you know, you, you were. It was projected onto you. You, you know, you would come to uh, enjoy the privilege of it and and whatnot. But I, I really did my best not to not to play into that stuff. But it was there. It was for sure there. Did you did you see that a lot that it was that it was growing or or that it was getting worse that there's there was a sense of of specialness or hierarchy a hierarchy or oh, that God, people yeah. were leveraging their specialness to get closer to the family 
I I think it was the other way around. So for sure there was a hierarchy um, and it changed. Like I, you know, I went in 99 and 2000 and then I took a break because I actually was going through a whole existential thing about whether I was going to stay involved in the community. I was starting to kind of see, see red flags about Patabi Joyce's behavior that I didn't know how to process and... So I kind of, you know, and I wasn't sure if I wanted to keep going to India every year because it was keeping me super poor and, you know, these types of things. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so yeah. I was like going through this whole thing. I took three years off. I went back in 2003 when the new Shala opened, the new Shala, which right. is now the old Shala. And it w- it had gone through so many changes in that short time. I, I miss that period that are sometimes referred to as the stare wars. Like I, yes. I miss those years, you know. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you but, were off exploring what? your existential crisis. <laughs> I, yeah, you know what? I met David Williams at that time and he told me he was going to, like, I should move to Hawaii or I should go to Greece <laughs> and find Cliff and learn all six series. And, you know, there, yeah. there, there's a whole nother side of the Ashtanga community that is not centered around Mysore and actually is quite yeah. critical of what happens in Mysore. So I was mm-hmm. exploring that. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But anyway, I went back to Mysore and, and of course, all of that stuff had become even more entrenched and, and had escalated so much while I had been gone. Um, and I never, I didn't really think of it as like people using, I guess some people did, I don't know, using their their privilege to try and get closer to the Joyce family. I almost saw it the reverse. There was hierarchy that was developing in the community and people were using their access to the Joyce family to have status amongst the community. Right. Right. No, I, I was definitely trying to get it closer to the, the, the family. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Some people were. were. What did you bottom. find when you got yeah, there? Because, yeah, because that's the thing. Like when you're at the bottom, you're looking like, where's the, where's the locus of power in this community? The locus of power in the community is your relationship to the family. Right. What can I do to carve and butt my way th- there to make myself more important? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I guess, I mean, what, that was I- definitely a part of it, but I, I'm not a competitive person by nature. I'm competitive with myself, but not socially. And... I always felt like there's only one Joyce family and there's so many students and I just couldn't be bothered with all of that, you know? And I, <laughs> mm-hmm. I just felt like there was other ways. I mean, certainly like, you know, you gain status by like the number of times you've been to Mysore and how many poses yeah. you're doing and, you know, these types of things that naturally accrue to you just by hanging out there longer. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so I was like very aware of that, but I just, I sometimes just felt like, I mean, you know, looking back on this now, I think this might sound naive, but I often just felt really bad for the Joyce family that everybody was kind of competing, but it just felt very insincere. Yeah. Mm, yeah. yeah. For sure. It was extraordinarily insincere. Yeah. And obvious. And I, and I was partaking in it. I knew, I knew what I was doing as well uh, was, was, you know, uh, naked flattery. Mm-hmm. Um, I think... <laughs> We've talked about this on the podcast before as well, that the red flags, you know, we saw them. Um, Harmony and I both saw them. We were, at the time, I think our the values of our culture were a little bit different 20 years ago than they were today. We took issue with the fucking money. Mm. Um, <laughs> yeah. The touching and the kissing girls and, 
you know, the, 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 what is that when he cups your buttocks after back bends? Soothing. <laughs> what is it? Soothing. Huh. <laughs> mm. Yes. So that kind of thing, that kind of psychology is going on. Right. That's definitely codependent and in intermix in a uh, mutual. Um, it wasn't really the buttocks. Oh, fuck off. Maybe some people. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So, Harmony, I got I to gotta call you up. Maybe you didn't experience that, but I definitely saw it. That was one of the major red flags, actually, was doing during it was actually on a a new york tour and there was the pranams um and you know just i'm gonna describe something so if you're sensitive you know turn off your ears but like you know there was a woman who did pranams and the way there was just the way that he cupped her bottom so there's this wasn't after backbends this was not in the context of a physical adjustment you know he she hugged him he hugged her and he cupped her bottom but like the way his hand lingered and he began to massage her and things like that. And I just remember a visceral response in my body that this was completely inappropriate. And that, and that was something I kind of had just, you know, ignored over the years. And when all of this sexual assault revelations came out in 2017 and I was Mm -hmm. really trying to like dig through my experience, that one memory came up. And that's what made me so certain that this was not just a matter of intention or perspective, that this was real. Yeah, Yeah, no, I I mean, uh, no, I was making a little bit of a joke, but yeah, it was definitely it was was definitely real. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I did have those experiences. I mean, I I adored Guruji and um, Patavi Joyce had, you know, and was backbended by him often. A thousand times, at least. Maybe. (laughs) And had, you know had those experiences of, you know, the, the bum grab and whatever, but fondle. yeah. And, you know, it is interesting because there is sort of, you know, one experience that I had that's, you know, fairly personal because most days I never really felt anything. I felt it was very um, benign. There was no, um, nothing really there except that it was, you know, there was like, it was very grandfatherly almost. Right. It didn't feel at all, strange or sexually um charged charged Mm -hmm. uh but one day there was one time out of like a (laughs) hundreds that um i don't know what it was if it was something in me something in him or just the combination of of energies or something where i felt like what you're talking about, sort of a visceral kind of reaction, like a, like a jolt of electricity, right? Like, oh, that's not appropriate. Mm. And um, I don't know what was different that day, but I remember I kind of jumped, right? I kind of jolted like, oh, Mm. and, uh, and he like moved away right away and walked around as he would and gave me the forward bend. Good, good, good. You know? Mm. and and it was very interesting because it was sort of a one one moment where i i really felt that like oh that felt like it was crossing some line but i couldn't really put my finger on why or what or what was different yeah, yeah. <laughs> and also um i also felt almost responsible in a weird way um because I was like, was that me? Was I, because I adored him, 
I absolutely adored him. And I thought, was I giving off some kind of like mm-hmm. invitation or some kind of, you know, energy for that, yeah. that he was then responding to or, you know, and so it w- it always sort of remained a little bit of a mystery to me about that. Um, but it never happened again. So <laughs> it was yeah. sort of one of those, those things. But I definitely, I mean, when all the allegations came out, I, I was not at all um in denial let's right. put it that way it was something it was, it that was, was surprising very when people said they didn't see it yeah it was like what yeah i was like what people are saying that we, they didn't know about that but that, we just didn't strange. care in the same way at that time i, I think, think yeah we framed it, it in a way that it was not yeah. you know that it wasn't what it was going on you know like just listening exactly. to your language about the fatherly grandfatherly energy and the affection and these were the ways that we talked about his touch you know and yeah i'm you know i'm sorry that you were left with with those with those feelings those confusion and maybe even that little bit of shame or self blame or or whatever which is mm-hmm. i think For very sure. very common um mm-hmm. do you just to ask you, like, did you feel that those were feelings and questions that you could process in the context of our community? Like, could you talk about that in our community? No, honestly, I have told this story to maybe you're maybe the fourth person I've talked to this about. I think I'm number three. Yeah. And then there's one and twos. (laughs) So it's not, it's definitely not something that, um, you know, it, it just wasn't talked about and it wasn't, it wasn't, nobody was inviting this conversation. I, I don't think. And it wasn't something that people were openly sharing if they had these experiences. Yeah. Do you recall any joking that took place? Because I remember, a lot of this sort of it was like addressed in a roundabout way through jokes mm, yeah sure mm-hmm. almost constantly oh yeah russell had a funny one i did <laughs> well i don't i'm not sure what you're referring to but i remember when mitchell gold attempted to kiss guruji after backbends mm. on the lips <laughs> yeah and and it's like where's my fondle guruji <laughs> Wow. And I was like, mm, you know that, you know, like no. Shannon did that too. He oh, after yeah. backbends one Shannon day, he gave him a big, a big hug, and yeah. Guruji was like, oh. <laughs> because what I was, what I was used to was, was like practicing with Petri, and like for like a solid two years, Petri and I would shove our genitals together <laughs> after back, you know, during backbends, and like I was trying to do that with Sharad, he just was not into it. <laughs> Yeah. At all. I would like try and press my hips forward to give myself leverage. It's like, hey, 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 hey. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Ease up there, kid. Whereas Saraswati, it was like, yeah, let's do this. Yeah. I think sometimes with Sharat, though, like now knowing what we know and what he kind of posted on Instagram, like I think he was a witness to all of this stuff and, and was, you know, uncomfortable and, and didn't know how to process it. But I feel like in, in, his case that he's like extremely clear about where the physical boundary is, you know? Oh yes, yeah. Yes, and always sure. was in the room. Yeah. I mean, if you grow up watching this and not knowing how to address it, you're, it's going to, you know, it's going to make an imprint. Yeah. yeah. And I think also like the way that, um, you know, the way that Patabi Joyce did do back, like back bends with people and the way that some of the, you know, senior teachers, 
that I've practiced with, they very much kind of um, mimic his adjustment. Right. And it is very close. Yeah. Like, it's much closer than than I backbend people when I'm backbending people. And I think Sherat and we come from maybe a time where there's, we've, you know, adjusted our, our adjustments, adjusted our adjustments. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, are creating a little more space here for the, the pelvis to come forward. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Mandra uses a towel, right? Like he, yeah. Yeah. a lot of yeah. distance, <laughs> you know, and, and it also, and guy as well, uh, use the towel and, but he, he did that. And I can see that now that he was doing that to not do the the suggestive adjustments. I think that way. was one of the challenges for me was when this had all come out, you know, like, yeah, I saw the red flags for years, but I think, you know, at some point you kind of, if you're going to stay in the community, you just learn not to see them or you learn to normalize it or something like that. And so I was doing these adjustments and that was, I think, one of the hardest things over the last few years has been to like uh, my, I mean, my teaching has become part of it's imprinted on my nervous system. It comes so naturally to me and having to go back and like reevaluate everything I'm doing, like, Oh, am I copying the patterns of, you know, a, a, a sexual predator? Am I doing this, you know, in getting access to people in ways that I'm not even intending or realizing, like I, I, I went through this period where I like literally questioned every step I took in the room and right. kind of had to go yeah. through just a whole inventory around that. Before my, my first trip, I was with, I was with guy and he brought this up that um, a friend of his had said, look, that we're in an inherited trauma community where we're inheriting the trauma from Patabi Joyce, who's inheriting trauma from Krishnacharya. And that's why I'm getting out of Ashtanga. And guy told me this story and we both kind of like looked puzzled. And like, well, enjoy your trip to Mysore, Russell. And it's like, okay. And I went off my first trip. And then later, of course, Guy had a complete um, mea culpa for that um, encouragement. Mm. And I'm, um, and I've talked about this as well. It's like, well, I'm, I'm, I haven't, I encourage people to go and, and endure the same things that I endured. And that all of these, and that all of these people who are who suffered trauma did, um, and I'm and I'm probably maybe more on the fence about um, my experience because I really, uh, I really loved my experience mm -hmm. in Mysore with Batavi Joyce. I I want to I want to ask your feelings about that and also your feelings about in 2003 why why go back if you had these flags. Yeah. So interestingly, um, where to begin? That was two questions. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I also had a very good experience in Mysore and that's been partially what's so heartbreaking about all of, all of this. Um, mm -hmm. when I went back, I, literally had you know it had been the center of my existence I really had had created a whole identity around being an Ashtanga practitioner and teacher and having gone to Mysore and I was going through that struggle I said I was contemplating finding a teacher in the west that I could work with like it was never about leaving Ashtanga it was just about not going to Mysore anymore um right. and leaving that part of the community and 
I literally went back because I was going to get closure. I'm doing air quotes right now, but that was my <laughs> idea was I, I, I was going to go one more time and I was just going to go for a month. And right. I went in January and, and, you know, when I went to register, Patabi Joy said, how long? And I said, one month. And he said, no, incorrect. And, mm-hmm. you know, as he sometimes did that. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I was like, well, you're wrong. I don't have enough money to stay any longer than that. Like, I'm, you know, I, I have a plane ticket out of here. Like, I'm here for a month. And I ended up staying for for almost six months. Um, wow. <laughs> Why? Yeah. I, I don't know, man. I just got like stuck. Like actually the best piece of advice I ever give to people who are going to Mysore these days is like have an exit plan. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. Because I just, you know, that was also the year I started studying Sanskrit. I started, mm-hmm. you know, like I just really settled into the vibe. I was always kind of Again, pushing myself towards the margins of society. I think I always had a dream that I was going to like, you know, kind of, I mean, I had a lot of escape fantasies at that time. And I think this just fit with that. Um, Mm -hmm. And I ended up staying for five and a half months. And over that course of time, I just, whatever I did, I just compartmentalized all those questions and doubts and became like a full on devotee. You know, I was like in. Um, so I I started going back every year and you know these types of things I want to ask you um, because I remember you you very clearly from that period after 2003 we had a lot of trips at the same time together and there's a very distinct memory that I have of you that to me uh, if someone says Greg Nardi to me that's the this is what I think of and I (laughs) And I know what I know. You know what I'm thinking of. But I just want to set it up for our listeners. Um, I, um, I guess, yeah, four years ago, I was in New York. I was shooting a video with Harmony and a bunch of other people with Sharad uh, that will never see the light of day. And <laughs> I was sitting on the couch between uh, between sets or between shoot between shoots, whatever they call that. And I, between takes, and I, and I hear over my shoulder, Sherat, and he's talking to a couple of really cute girls. I think they were like, they were like gaffers or something, (laughs) whatever. And he's showing them his phone. And he, he says, ah, I I see him. And he's, ah, here, look at Russell, huh? Piles of rolling fat. He's thinner now. Okay. But look. Files and files of rolling fat. Mm. And I like, he's showing them a picture of me, fat, and now I'm thinner. And I'm like. He's fat shaming me He's fucking fat shaming me like Greg Nardi. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what the f- fuck is this? And, it's, and, I, and I was like, there was so much to unpack there. Like, I know that he really struggles with his body image and he's like projecting his body fat image onto me and he's aware that you know girls fucking flock to me wherever i fucking walk and he's like getting in between that and undermining that at the same time and i just i just wanted to ask you like can can you comment because this is the memory that i have of you right of being in second series class and every fucking class shrat yelling out greg too fat, go back. 
you know. And it's like you were like in Titi Basana for like what, nineteen years? Yeah. Dwipada actually. Dwipada. I've mentioned this before that you were in Dwipada for five years and I'm wondering if that's accurate. Is it true? It's true. It is true. And uh yeah, I that's the what I became infamous in our community for. (laughs) Yeah. Greg, too fat, nardy. You know, it's like too fat. No, from, dweeb, from dweebpot and nardy. <laughs> well, uh, I mean, maybe I they're related I somehow. I don't know. But see, I, I want to say this. Like, I, I know you're not too fat. I know that you're a super sexy, good-looking guy. But like, what the, what the fuck is this? I mean, it's such a, yeah. it's such a bitch move for him to do. And I, I don't know how someone can move forward in our community with that kind of dynamic between you and your teacher. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Russell. I, I appreciate you coming to my defense with such passion. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, you know, I think that there's definitely a lot that is problematic. And at the time I probably told myself, oh, maybe it's a cultural difference. They don't have the same issues with body shame that we have, but I don't, think that that matters one way or another. I think that, you know, we what we've seen is an awareness around ableism and body positivity that's growing in yoga these last few years. And I think Mm -hmm. there's a reason why it's become a movement, because for years, yoga was associated with very thin, able-bodied individuals, and you were rewarded for it. And I think that... You know, and it wasn't just from Sharad. I heard that from other senior teachers in the Ashtanga community um, oh, that I was really? chubby. Yeah. And the thing right. is, is that, oh, like, <laughs> this is at a time in my life when I, you know, I'm not a tall guy. I'm 5'6", but I was, by all standards of health, like, I was very lean. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, so, like, the idea that, that a you know, I mean, I come from a family who we just have the obesity gene, right? Like everybody in my family yeah. tends to have, uh, you know, issues with weight from the time they're children. And I actually, in my family, I'm like super skinny. <laughs> right. Yeah. As, as are Harmony and I. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I just felt like, you know, to me, I've always had an incredible sensitivity around weight, not because of my own body image, but because the family that I come from and I've watched how much Mm. uh, shame they have, how they are blamed, you know, like, like my, my mom, if she goes to a doctor, they, they will not even really give her any real assessment. Everything is just, oh, you need to lose weight. You need to lose weight, you know? And so I've kind of watched how society treats people who you know, carry weight and it's, it's terrible. And so I've always sort of had no tolerance for fat shaming. Um, So Mm -hmm. if that would be said to me, it was, it never really affected my body image. Um, You know, but it was, I I think that it's, it's, uh, it is something that I found in our community that is incredibly harmful. And I think, unfortunately, it encourages eating disorders and it is easy for eating disorders to hide in our community because there is this celebration of the thin body. There's a celebration of cleansing. There's a celebration of all these things as these kind of signs of spiritualized mastery. And, and I think it's, you know, I'm, I'm glad that that conversation is changing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's um, I think it's such an important conversation to have. And I mean, 
I totally agree that, you know, eating disorders and disordered eating and body dysmorphia is all very much embedded and, you know, hidden, but also overtly expressed within our our Ashtanga community in particular, because also the system is so demanding. Mm. And I mean, let's just be honest, there's some advanced postures that you cannot, uh, you know, perform correctly in air quotes, you know, unless you have a very thin physique. Mm. And it's very thin. It's, yeah, it's a little bit, um, you know, disheartening in some ways. that we associate progress with advanced asanas because that also means that uh, always one type of body is going to uh, be held up as this um, champion of yoga. Yeah, champion of yoga is the model, right? And I mean, not all of us can be 90 pounds. (laughs) No, and and I think just, you know, to, I, I think it's really important to put out there is that it's not just thinness there's a lot of genetic things that will enable you to do certain asanas and and not others um For you know sure. up body to whatever standard body proportions joint mm-hmm. shape Lights. like yeah. you know it, it is a bit of a genetic lottery at some point and the yeah. whole idea that there's a correct way and an incorrect way to do poses and that you can't progress through the series unless you practice it in a certain way I think is another model that that needs to go. You know, that's that's interesting. Like when we did the shoot in in New York, three out of eight of us mm. uh, passed the Eiler the Eilers Danlos test. <laughs> do you know that disease that creates super yeah, flexible joints? I do. Where you can pull the flesh off of your chest out three inches. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was one of the tests, and we went through and like, yeah, three of us had the the gene for it wow which meant that you could it was that much easier for you to get uh certified in ashtanga yoga and then get a platinum star and then make your living through teaching ashtanga yoga yeah yeah what do you know at that point when you have a disease (laughs) i think it's i mean despite you know definitely people having more genetic predispositions to being you know hypermobile um it's a really interesting conversation about, you know, being able to modify and adjust poses within the sequence to accommodate for different, you know, uh, physical dispositions or, but also like the idea of, you know, these gatekeeper postures, right? Like holding people in a posture as you were, as you so intimately know, Dwipada, um, for a period of time because you see something in the student that they have a capacity uh, beyond what they think they can do, right? Or you're trying to learn some kind of lesson of patience, of surrender, of uh, self-worth beyond the asana, beyond the posture. Um, You know, there's all kinds of interesting lessons we can learn when we sit and wait and hold at a certain asana. Um, but then also it needs to be balanced, as you were saying, by, you know, not being so rigid in this um, methodology or this sort of technique of making an asana look like a specific or a very particular kind of way. Yeah. I think that... How do you feel about that? 
I, I think that we as... Because you're a pretty traditional Ashtanga teacher. I think I you kind of hold students, right? In postures. Not not anymore. I don't actually. Okay. Okay. Um, How did that change? What what made you change that? I, it, it's, it's just been an evolution of kind of really thinking about what is, you know, what is my role as a teacher? Um, mm hmm and really looking at power dynamics. And, and this is one of the things that I think is very important that, you know, like as, as teachers in, when we go to Mysore and we do the Parampara method, like there's some wonderful things that come out of that, but we are not really taught how to teach. And there's certain things I think are just necessary um, things for, for teachers to know. And power dynamics is one of those. And I think that the mm -hmm. idea that, that, as teachers, we are there to teach our students lessons um, is also one of those things that I hope goes away. Um, I think that we are there to support our students in learning what they need to learn, not what we think they need to learn. Mm -hmm. And I do think there is this thing that happens for teachers where we say, oh, they can do better or, oh, they need to learn patience or, oh, their ego is too strong. You know what? Like, right. I don't think that's my place to 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 put that and to use my authority and power to to make those decisions for the student. That's amazing because I mean, that's really and maybe our, the listeners wouldn't quite understand just how radical a sentence that is. Because in, in 2000, you'd be laughed out of, a, out of a Mysore room if you expressed that opinion. And the teacher would probably ban you from the studio. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, this was the idea that, that, that the guru had some insight that we lacked and they could right, see yeah. into us things about ourselves that we couldn't see. And it's like, that's, that's nonsense. I mean, there are things about ourselves that maybe are hidden from our conscious mind but we're the ones that are going to find those and they're going to arise when we feel safe. They're going to arise mm -hmm. when it's, you know, when it's appropriate for them to arise. And then our job as teachers is to support the students while they're working through whatever is arising for them. Mm -hmm. I, I just kind of want to um, circle back for a moment because I'm thinking about power dynamics and thinking about the lessons that you were learning in, in Mysore um, and this, um, to my eyes, it was uh, a painful and humiliating object lesson that Sharat was trying to make with you. Mm. You're saying that it didn't affect your body image, but I would have thought that it would still create contempt in you for the teacher as he was. No, it didn't. <laughs> I mean, How not, is that? I don't know. I really don't know. Um, I'm a little baffled. I haven't really thought about this in a long time, but... Uh, you know, I guess at the time it was that I was buying into the fact that he was, you know, everything that he would do or say was somehow for my own good or to encourage me or to get, you know, me to access, mm -hmm. you know, or surpass limits or something like that. I mean, you know, and as I said, it wasn't just from from him. I remember, again, I, when I was in Dwipada for all those years, I, I would talk to like everybody about like, well, what could I be doing different? What's missing? Why can't, you know? What What is the magic formula? Because I was doing everything that I thought I was supposed to do. My eyes were level. My feet were open. Mm -hmm. I was sitting straight, you know. Right. And 
people were, you know, I remember being told like, well, you know, if you can't do it, what are you going to do about it? You know what I mean? Like as if this was somehow like a moral failing of mine <laughs> that I could yeah. do this pose, yeah. you know? Yeah. You need to change some things, Greg. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, I, you know, and I, I just wasn't, I don't know, I wasn't going to do it. I, I, I knew that I was doing, I was working really hard. I was doing everything that I could. So if there was a lesson in it, it was just sort of like, just accept things for what they are, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> like I, nothing was going to change. I was doing everything I possibly could. Well, let me ask you a, a different question then, because some of our listeners may not know this, but of course, this was a seismic event in our community uh, when you, uh, and please correct me if I'm not um, parsing this correctly, but that, that you um, rescinded your authorization. Yeah. Can you, I, I, I mean, it was one thing for like some, some other folks to do it. You know, I heard about some other folks doing it who weren't well known, but, um, but for you to do it, it was, it was very different for me personally. It felt like a, like a sibling had rejected the parent. And I was like, whoa, I don't, and I'm, and I'm a, it makes such a huge, it made such a huge impact on me personally when you did that. I, I wonder if, would you be okay just telling our listeners what went into the entire decision? Yeah, sure. Um, thank you for saying that because I don't know how that impacted people. Um, and I was not that I was doing it for impact, but, uh, but thank you for validating it. Cause it was a tough decision. Mm. Um, but you know, of it for years i was concerned with the way that teachers were being trained um i just didn't mm -hmm. feel like people i i was starting to hear you know authorization had ramped up and people were getting authorized mm -hmm. quickly and often and i was starting to hear more stories about people getting injured mm -hmm. and so i was beginning to talk to sharat about the problem of, of training teachers and what we could do. And he was very anti-teacher training, as we know. Um, but I started to have conversations with him about apprenticeship and things that we could do to help, you know, raise the standard of, of teacher training. And he was, he was, he agreed, you know, he, he recognized that, that things needed to, to tighten up and the standard needed to be raised. Um, so I was already very sort of concerned about how to teach um, when the revelations about uh, Patabi Joyce uh, sexually assaulting students came out. And that sort of heightened my sense of urgency around training teachers properly um, and brought a just, whole... Just to say, just to interrupt, I, I'm sorry to interrupt, but just to say that I knew at that time um, he expressed uh, to my my employer, that he wanted to go from 40 authorizations a year to 400. Wow. And like, that's because he, he had a certain number that he was trying to reach of authorized teachers in the world. And it was, I, I, yeah, I think I had the same experience. I had the same reaction that you did. Like that's, it, that's bonkers. Yeah. It's bonkers. And, <laughs> you know, we, we started to just hear a lot about abuses of power. So when it came out that Patabi Joyce had been abusing his power. Um, I felt, you know, like I 
don't blame Shrat for the sins of his grandfather, um, but I didn't feel like he was equipped to deal with it properly um, mm-hmm. just because I felt he was traumatized by it. And I didn't feel like he took any type of response to address the fact that we had created a community that was based on hierarchy and power that concentrated right. power in the hands of the teacher. And, you know, he wasn't, if, if anything, he was, he was uh, amplifying that rather than mitigating that um, by calling himself Paramaguru and these types of things. And so I turned in my authorization, it took me about a year of contemplation, um, right. but I decided that I wanted to step out and do teacher trainings uh, in that, that addressed power dynamics and talked about equity and consent and these types of things. And I knew I couldn't do that as an authorized teacher. So I wrote him a letter saying just that, like, you know, thank you for the time that we've had together. I mean, we, we had years that we knew each other um, and mm-hmm. that I just didn't feel like I could continue with authorization with integrity because I did intend to do teacher training. But what's amazing about that is that you knew by writing the letter that that was the end of your relationship. I mean, that's that's implicit in the way that you wrote it. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Was it emotional for you? Did you feel like you were ending something? And like, yeah, I mean, I left the door open. I was like, if you ever want to hang out, I'm cool. (laughs) But but yeah, for sure. I mean, I I, I didn't, it took me three days to hit the send button on that email, you know? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And so I'm sorry to interrupt you before. Did you, did you say that was the last time that you've interacted? It wasn't an interaction, of course. Yeah, that was it. That was the last time. Yeah, no response. No response. And I, I imagine that when he's um, been to Miami, that you didn't participate in setting up those uh, tour stops. No, I, I don't promote Mysore anymore. Um, not because I don't believe in the city. I think it's an amazing city with amazing teachers. I just don't feel like the dynamic, the community dynamic is healthy. Mm-hmm. And... Can you go? Can you go deeper into that? In, in what ways that it's not healthy? Is it because of the the power dynamic and the creation of hierarchy and status through anorexia and and that sort of thing? All of it. I think we've we've touched on a lot of it, you know. But I do think it creates a a, a situation where you know it does become a very codepe- codependent dynamic. You know, I I really feel like yoga for, for me it was initially such a process of self-healing and self-expression and over the years it just turned into something where it was just a massive projection onto the teacher as having this ability to heal me and Mm. I think that that is encouraged unfortunately and I and I think that you know I would like to as a teacher try to again give people the tools to go on a process of self-healing. So just continually pointing back to them, to, to the students. Yeah. I love that. I'm right there with you, Greg. I mean, I think the way I've taught has also evolved and changed over the years, but I'm, I'm much more um, of in the camp of, you know, letting students kind of decide what they're ready for and what they're not ready for. 
um, and Come, like engaging. I'm, I'm not ready for that. No, you're not ready for that, <laughs> but I am. <laughs> um, and engaging in like a conversation about it. I mean, there's some things that, you know, if you're, if you want to uh, progress in the, in the sequence, right? Like mm-hmm. you may or may not need to be able to do fully. Um, uh, so they're going to always end up being obstacles for you if you don't confront them, but also, you know, there's other things you can do that can help you to open your body or get those same kinds of openings. And I'm much more willing to, as maybe like Tim Miller or Richard Freeman would say, include research into the (laughs) sequence to help, you know, create those openings and those dynamics and, yeah. And, uh, just like make it a process of co-creation and liberation rather than, you know, this top down kind of approach, which I don't think is healthy at all because I, I have students that show up sometimes and come to me and, and it's, it's almost like they feel like they're not worthy of doing more postures or they're not worthy of their practice, or they're like waiting for some teacher that they practice with to like bestow them with that next posture, like a, a gift from God. And it does feel that way. <laughs> I know it does feel that way. Cause that's what it felt like for us, but I don't think it, it is a healthy place to put yourself because no. then you're always like at the mercy of, of someone and you're, you're not in a position of power or, or even equality then. Right. Which is really, I mean, it's not about being in a position of power. It's about being equal in the relationship. I, I yeah. feel you know, like it's, if- it's interesting because I feel like one of the first sort of critical conversations that started to arise in yoga was around injury. And of course, now we're mm-hmm. like heavy into the critical phase of, of yoga, <laughs> yoga theory, mm-hmm. but injury was kind of the first thing that people started to, to look at. And, and this, this, um, sort of response from the yoga teachers became like, well, listen to your body. It was sort of like putting it back on the students. Like if you hurt yourself, you're not listening to your body. And I I think that like one of the things I realized is like, of course people don't listen to their bodies. We, the entire, like everything in the world and in our lives is, is teaching us how to be disembodied and being, learning how to listen to your body is actually a skill that needs to be taught. And Mm -hmm. When I would, you know, encounter students similar to you, but but almost a, a slightly different shade of that same dynamic was people apologizing to me for being tired, apologizing for not being able to do a pose properly or, you know, right. these types mm-hmm. of things like just apologizing for their body, apologizing for being human. That's when I started to realize, like, we're actually teaching something that is disembodying it is it is not mm-hmm. teaching people how to listen to their body mm. yeah I, I think that was that was one of the, the most novel things that i heard from from richard freeman was that this notion that uh pain there's good pain and there's bad pain and then there's tragic accidents mm. and we were calling those tragic accidents openings and that's i i not having ever spoken to karen rain I feel that might have catalyzed a lot of her critical thinking on the culture of my store was that she she had a tragic accident in Krakatasana and Karen was Richard's student first and her pubic bone was split in half by Patavi Joy suggesting her in the posture. 
you know, people not knowing what the posture is, it's, it's basically the, the forward splits and you go back and you grab your knee. He pressed on her chest and the pubic bone split in half. And like, it's, that didn't need to happen for her to become spiritually realized. Right. <laughs> Even if it did actually create spiritual realization. Yeah. There's other ways. There are yeah, other ways, are less invasive ways. <laughs> there are less, less, uh, less violent, less violent ways. I remember, um, I remember the uh, Dalai Lama speaking in Chicago, and I went to visit it. I went to listen to him with like, I don't know, something like forty five thousand other people. And he said uh, he was talking about abortion, and he could sort of, as soon as he started talking about it, you could feel the crowd like suddenly like, oh, let's not talk about abortion. Um, and he said, no, no, we need more, we need more, less violent means of birth control, less violent. I was like, uh, this is still really uncomfortable, but it was a, it was a, it was a sweet thing to say about a very uncomfortable subject mm -hmm. that there are less violent means, uh, what are they called? It what's the word for that? Upunya, the the special the special means of um, Upaya, achievement, skillful means. Yeah, it, it's helpful to have less violent means of of realization. Yeah, <laughs> agreed. <laughs> agreed. I you know I think that there's a there's a time. So I've been studying um, uh, yoga therapy over the last few years. Because, you know, I always thought it was very interesting, yoga chikitsa, meaning yoga therapy, associated with Ashtanga yoga. And yet, you know, we'd oftentimes see people walking around injured or in pain. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, well, let me see what yoga therapy is all about and, and how I can fit this in with the Ashtanga practice. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I found is that in the yoga therapy community, at least in the classes that I was taking, that I was constantly having to defend myself as an Ashtanga. <laughs> Um, right, yeah. you know, there was just this belief that Ashtanga yoga was too intense. From the very, I mean, from, from even in the nineties, people were saying that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and one of the things that I actually really defended and, you know, why I still am, am very clearly an Ashtanga is because for, for me, Ashtanga yoga, you know, healing is not just about the physical healing of the body, right? Like, for me, having come from a background of, of depression and all these different things, there was, it was very important for me to, to find my limits and to push my limits and to find the boundaries of my existence. And so doing advanced asana was incredibly liberating and important in that sense. And so I will never say don't do advanced asana. However, I think we need to have some very clear sense that there is a clear sense that there is risk in this because it is not functional range of movement. It is far beyond what would be considered healthy or necessary for normal functioning. So when I think about therapy, of course, I'm not just thinking about physical therapy. And, you know, we, we're, we're multidimensional beings. We are emotional, spiritual, all of that. And so healing is not just so simple as you know, oh, do this technique and it'll make this condition go away. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What I do think, though, is that like with the physical practice, when we are doing advanced asana, that we do need to be aware that there is risk involved and that 
these movements are not necessarily functionally necessary. They're taking you far beyond normal range of motion. And so if you are going to encounter these things, you know, you need to do them in a way where you're doing them because you've conditioned yourself to do them over time. You're doing them in a way that's safe. And at the same time, you know, like understanding that they're not necessary, you know, and I think that's a really important piece is that it's it's only necessary if you feel it's important, but there's nothing magical that happens when you get your legs behind your head and Dwipada. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> and it can be just incredibly harmful if the sole purpose of your existence is to get your legs behind your head so you can get another posture. You're yeah. really missing something about the experience of what it feels like to transform your body if you're only doing it in pursuit of an end. Yeah, I, I think that's right. Yeah, I I'm, unfortunately the the twenty four hour yoga marathon is is about to start, um, but I I just isn't really this a twenty four hour podcast? This is starting. But I just really I want to thank you for being on the show. I feel like your upcoming teacher training is going to be incredibly impactful for. Uh, for a, a broad group of students. Can you can you tell us more about when that's happening and, and where it's happening? Sure. It's um, happening, it starts on June 1st, um, and it is going to be happening in a combination of online and in-person. Um, I've got an amazing group of teachers who are going to be involved in it. I also think it's important to get diverse, multiple voices, um, not just a single teacher. So, you know, we've got uh, different presentations that are going to be given, and it's going to happen from June until January of 2022. Uh, So June 2021 to January 2022. Um, If you live locally here in Fort Lauderdale, you can come in to uh, in-person sessions, but if you're not locally, you can attend the sessions online as well. We're obviously not going to be teaching hands-on assists because I don't feel that's something that should be taught online. Um, mm-hmm. but we are going to be doing like asana technique and vinyasa counting and all of that on top of all the other wonderful things like Ayurveda, yoga philosophy, um, equity and power dynamics in the yoga classroom therapy as well. And some yoga therapy, trauma informed yeah. teaching. Yeah. As a matter of fact, uh, well, I guess this podcast won't be released in time, but we're having an open house tomorrow where I go over the full curriculum. Oh, great. Yeah. Yeah, our our podcast will. Um, we might <laughs> maybe we could release it this weekend. I, while um, while you were talking, we've had a couple of questions come in uh, from our listeners. Um, p- things people have heard about you. You once uh, this is from Martha Haynes in Florida. You once saved a woman from drowning in Brindavan Gardens. No, I don't know. <laughs> um, this student is a sexy yoga girl um, <laughs> at sexy yoga girl. You were a committed gun enthusiast. Mm, also, no. <laughs> okay. um, uh, Stephen Lapham was listening to the show live, which is odd. Um, he he seems to remember that you lost half your right foot in the war. That wasn't <laughs> Vietnam, right? That was the Iraq War. Uh, Korea. That was in Korea. Korea. Oh, <laughs> fucking hell. Uh, okay. 
You, These are all I'm dating myself, I know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You're like wow. 70 years you mis- old. Not just 90. dated, but misrepresented your youth, let me tell you. <laughs> well, we're so thrilled that you could come on the show here, Greg. And we're going to have links to your yoga school in Fort Lauderdale and... Um, where people can can sign up for uh, your teacher training. And I'm sure they can also just email you for more information and a curriculum if they're interested in joining. Cool. Thank you so much. It was great to reconnect with both of you guys. Yeah, it was a pleasure to reconnect with you and to to know that I wasn't exaggerating your Dwipada experience. (laughs) But how good he felt when he got that next posture, though. Yeah, <laughs> must have felt amazing, we, right? You know, it was actually so anticlimactic. So, like, finally, after months and months and months of being with Shrat and not getting anything, I just went up to him and I said, Shrat, like, what are you looking for? And he said, oh, he said, go home and just add on one pose a week until you get up to Karnavasana. <laughs> no. <laughs> really? Yes. Oh, oh my, my God. That's <laughs> And then oh. he finished me on second series in a guided class in a single day. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's so many wasted years. <laughs> no, you know what? It just feels like, honestly, like it, like I slipped through the cracks and then he would just like correct it in oversight. <laughs> yeah, right. Totally. Fantastic. Yeah. There's yeah. sometimes just no rhyme or reason to these things. <laughs> totally, totally. anyway all right well well, i will uh, i don't know if i'll see you at one o'clock in the morning but um (laughs) yeah you're teaching online i hope so yeah (laughs) okay lots of love greg thanks all right love to you too bye-bye i love you brother love you too thanks for listening to this episode of finding harmony with me your host harmony slater you can find out more information on my website harmonyslater.com And I look forward to connecting with you again soon. Standing in eternity's shadow, watching the breaking waves, there's a hard wind and the soil.